Welcome to this podcast for the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality, the mission of which is to connect the practical truths of economics with the perennial truths of ethics and building a sustained and accessible defense of free enterprise, entrepreneurship, and stewardship in the moral categories consonant with most Americans. I'm David Bowes, your host. In this podcast, we'll explore why economic and social issues are intrinsically linked, as argued in the book, Indivisible, Restoring Faith, Family, and Freedom Before It's Too Late, written by James Robeson and Ph.D. Director and Senior Fellow of the Center, Jay Richards. I'll talk with Dr. Richards about the links between social and moral issues and some of the more controversial social issues facing modern society. Why can't economic and social issues be separate? Well, that's the conventional wisdom, is that the so-called social issues and the fiscal issues are separate. But the problem is, if you look at the best arguments for, say, economic freedom, for free markets or for limited government, what you find is that those arguments actually rest on the same philosophical foundations that the social issues do. So, for instance, the pro-life argument. I mean, the pro-life argument is essentially an argument about whether every human being or whatever his status or, or size or age or location will be accorded the rights of a human being in terms of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life is the first right. That's what the pro-life debate is about. Now, if you look at the sort of free market argument, we quote Ayn Rand in the book, all the best free market arguments, the arguments for economic freedom, are based on this same idea that there's this intrinsic value in the human individual, that human individuals ought to be able to flourish and to pursue their goals within the rule of law. Even Ayn Rand says that every man is an end in himself and not merely a means to the end for someone else. Rand was a hardcore atheist that she was a hardcore pro-choicer. And yet when it came to defending the free market, she appealed to this idea of the intrinsic value of the human individual. It's the same foundational idea in the pro-life movement. And so while I think certainly these are different issues and you can think and talk about them differently, if we want to have a consistent, fully grounded political philosophy, we're going to have to ground them on these fundamental principles. And when you do that, what you find is that the economic issues that conservatives are interested in and the social issues that conservatives are interested in, they're based in the same fundamental principles. And the science itself is backing that view up more and more, showing that um, the unborn child has a distinct DNA structure, so there's a secular argument to be made. Absolutely. Now, I guess somebody, a hardcore atheist, could say the very idea that humans have rights is just theological nonsense, and there are philosophers that say that. The truth of the matter is, is that doesn't carry a lot of weight in political debate. In a political debate, everyone on all sides assumes this idea that human beings have individual rights. And so then the question is, what is the set of human beings? What counts as a human being? And you don't need any complicated philosophical or theological arguments to discuss an unborn human. You can actually resolve that simply on the facts of biology. We know a heck of a lot more now than we did, say, a century ago about what's going on inside the uterus of a woman when a child is developing. But there's really no non-arbitrary distinction or black line that you can draw other than conception. Before conception, you have a sperm and an egg that are not, if left to their own devices, going to develop into a human being. After fertilization, you have not just an independent living being with its own DNA, but one that directs its own development toward a particular end. Every one of us at one time was an embryo and a fetus and a newborn and a toddler. Those are just stages of human development, and the embryo is just the early stage. But if every one of us was once an embryo, 
child. And uh, obviously, we were uh, not ever identical of anything that wasn't a human being. So a human embryo is a human being. This is just not that complicated of an argument. It's an uncomfortable one. But if we really believe that human beings are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, then we can't, at least if we're focusing on the facts, I think, withdraw that right from unborn humans. Speaking of uncomfortable arguments, why should marriage be defined as between a man and a woman? I read a poll recently where college freshmen, I think it was 71% of young people were in favor of the idea of redefining marriage to include same-sex couples. Mm -hmm. And the big question that's always brought up is what harm could come to a heterosexual marriage if homosexual couples were included in the definition? Why does that matter? Well, that is the argument. People could also say, what harm will come to the American dollar if we flood the market with counterfeits? Well, everybody knows that would devalue every other dollar if you flooded the market with counterfeits. And there's kind of two ways to go on this. First, people say, what harm is there if, say, two men or two women want to get married? in my marriage. Well, all you have to do is look at the countries and the places where this has happened, places like the Netherlands and Denmark, which had same-sex marriage for a number of years now. What's actually happened to marriage in those countries? Are they suddenly marital paradises where everybody's getting married? No, not at all. In fact, the institution of marriage has almost completely disappeared in those countries. The vast majority of people that are in their 20s and 30s don't bother to get married at all. So just the empirical facts are that when you redefine marriage from what it's been understood to be traditionally, you don't increase marriage. You actually end up destroying the institution. But I'd say the more fundamental kind of philosophical issue is this, David. A limited government is a government which recognizes pre-political realities. That is, it recognizes that there are certain things outside its jurisdiction. So, for instance, our government is limited because it recognizes that the individual is prior to the state. So the state can't, as it does in a communist country, say it's going to create a new man. No, the state, because it's limited, says human beings are given by God certain rights that the state recognizes. The state doesn't determine what those rights are. The state, if it's limited, simply recognizes those rights. So the question is, are there other pre-political realities that a limited government ought to recognize? Well, absolutely. I mean, things like the church and the family and marriage are also pre-political realities. In fact, an institution of marriage understood between a man and a woman is a universal human institution. There are variations. Sometimes you have dowries or arranged marriages or maybe polygamy, but there's no culture that we know of in human history that failed to understand the basic institution as an institution between a man and a woman who have complementary biologies and are made to fit together to be able to produce children. That's always been the basic understanding of marriage. And so that's a pre-political universal reality. In fact, I would say the institution of marriage has more claim to being universal than even our American ideas about the individual. The American ideas about individual rights are actually much more unprecedented historically and culturally. Marriage, on the other hand, in every type of culture throughout history, whatever its sort of religious background, has recognized marriage. And so I would say a limited government must recognize what marriage is, is a pre-political human institution based on human nature. And it would actually be a totalitarian act for the state to say, we arrogate to ourselves the responsibility and the authority to redefine this human institution. What about those who say, well, marriage has been redefined before because obviously there used to be polygamous marriages. And when we look at Denmark and the Netherlands, people think even though marriage might be on the decline there, those countries don't seem so bad. They're fun to visit. So why should we care if marriage goes on the decline? 
It's a great question, but it's important to actually look at what the sociological data says. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that sociologists that study this know that the human institution of family and marriage is one of the most important realities in terms of human flourishing. On almost every statistical measure that you can imagine, for instance, children that are raised in broken homes or homes where they're raised by one parent are statistically much worse off in almost every possible way. Even human health for adult human beings that have suffered divorce, you're much worse off if you suffered a divorce than if your marriage remains intact. And so we know sociologically that marriage and families are very, very important. And we give a bunch of examples of that in the book. But it's important to realize when we're looking at countries like, say, Denmark and the Netherlands, those cultures are still drawing on the interest or living on the fumes of a kind of pre-existing culture. What we need is about 30 or 40 years, unfortunately, of this kind of experiment to see what the real cultural implications of this are. But all the evidence we have sociologically right now indicates that if you want a vibrant, stable society with a limited government, you want healthy families. I mean, a culture in which all the families dissolve is not a libertarian paradise. It's in fact a a culture in which the state is involved in every intimate detail of your life. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality. If you'd like more information about the center, please go to discovery.org and click on the Center for Wealth, Poverty, and Morality link. This podcast is copyright 2012, the Discovery Institute. All rights reserved. Discovery Institute's new Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality is home to some of the nation's leading defenders of free enterprise. They include renowned writer and futurist George Gilder, award-winning author Jay Richards, and syndicated radio personality Michael Medved. You are invited to join us as we kick off Discovery Institute's new Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality at a special reception to be held Tuesday, March 13th, 6 p.m. at the Rainier Square Conference Center, located at 1301 Fifth Avenue in downtown Seattle. Come meet these scholars and learn more about the activities of the Center in the coming year. For more information on this event, please visit www.discovery.org. We hope to see you there.